Okay, so thank you for, um, for faithfully coming. Um, you guys have, it's just been a blessing for uh, me and Quay to do this, and um, it's just been a blessing to see everybody keep coming back each week. Uh, a lot of times when you have a vital life, you know, the, you got a lot of people the first night, and then it just kind of trails off until there's nobody left the last, the last few nights. So I really appreciate you guys uh, staying with us, and I hope it's been beneficial to you. So let's just recap what we've learned. So in our first session, uh, that key point was God's world is the context in which every life is lived and God effectively witnesses to himself through it, right? And so we said the first step then would be to joyfully align your heart with God's revelation, both in his word and in creation, and to cultivate thankful observation. So what we meant by that is to to recognize that God does say he, he testifies through his creation, start to recognize it and be, be the opposite of the unbeliever who pushes that knowledge down. Be thankful. Speak it out. You know, say, thank you, Lord, for this beautiful sunset you gave us, you know, this wonderful taste of this food, so on. You know, cultivate that because that in itself is an apologetic right? because you're coming against that atheistic spirit that says there is no God. And then the second week, uh, Quay taught us about um, how important it is to understand man's nature according to the Bible, both pre- and post-fall, and to understand his true problem and God's glorious answer to it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he said the second step was to be very clear on what God's word says about man's nature and to study to understand the redemption in Christ. We need to be able to know what we believe and why we believe it and be able to share the gospel with people clearly, right? And then last week, uh, we said the most potent form of evidence is one that is already believed. And this is where we started applying the content of the first two sessions. And we're trying to say, um, you know, take an aggressive posture, uh, uh, an offensive posture, where we're trying to show the unbeliever that he does know there's a God. Uh, It's written on his very nature. The Imago Dei is in him. So we said the third step was to study your God that you might be able to point out the Imago Dei in the unbeliever, the the image of God in the unbeliever. Um, So that's what we did the first three sessions. And so now we're going to go into the fourth session, which is called Answering the Fool. And remember I said this is not the pejorative, you know, name calling, you fool. Uh, This is the Bible definition of a fool is someone that knows God exists and says there is no God. Uh, The fool says in his heart there is no God. And so that's what we mean by the fool. And we said last week that we were going to use two different uh, scriptures for these last two weeks. Uh, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him, which we did last week. And again, that was more an offensive uh, trying to show the believer, uh, contrary to his worldview, that he does believe in God. He does know there's a God, and he bases his, his life on it. He creates books and movies and culture based on his knowledge of God. And this week, we're going to do... Uh, In this final week, we're going to do the answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And what we're going to be doing with this, and what I think this scripture is telling us to do, is actually to enter into the worldview of the unbeliever so that we might perform an internal internal critique of it. Okay? So we're going to take him at his word. Okay? This is what you believe. You believe there's no God? We're We're going to answer him according to that folly. Okay? Um, so we're going we're gonna to go through that. And so our, our key point is that suppressing the truth will always lead to arbitrariness 
and inconsistencies. Okay, it's kind of like a, a liar. You know, when a, when when a person is telling a lie, um, he has to maintain that falsity, right? Because it never really happened. And when people say, "So where were you the other night?" Oh, I was, you know, I was with my friend. We were out at the beach. Okay. And then someone else asks, "Where were you?" Well, we were at the store. Well, I thought you said you were at the beach. You know, and he's, he becomes inconsistent because it's a lie. It didn't really happen. Well, the unbeliever does the same thing too because he knows there's a God and he's pushing it down. He's pushing that knowledge down because God has made it clear to the unbeliever that he exists, but he's pushing that down. So when he starts talking about moral issues and epistemological issues, metaphysical issues, he's going to be all over the map, inconsistency. And, and it's up to you to point that out. To bring that to his attention. Now, before I, I go any further uh, tonight, I, I want to. I, I was thinking about this over the past week that you know a lot of this, especially last week, uh, was sounded kind of pretty heady, very philosophical, and and you can, might get in, in your mind that hey, you can if you have the right arguments, you can argue somebody into the kingdom, and that is not possible. <laughs> you cannot do it. Uh, a person's salvation is always and ever a miracle of God. Okay, this is what you're dealing with when you go out on the mission field. When you talk to the unbeliever, this is what you're dealing with. Okay, you all know, you all recognize this from Scripture, right? This is Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37. Uh, the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out, and the Spirit of the Lord set me down in the midst of a valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed, They were very dry, not just bones, but very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord, you know. And that should be our posture. You know, when we're, one of the things I love about Reformed theology is because we do put so much weight on the sovereignty of God. That takes out however bad the unbeliever is, right? Because we're talking about a dead person coming back to life. And so you might be talking to somebody that seems very nice and pleasant. They're no easier to get saved than the drug dealer, you know, hopped up on heroin. They're, they're no easier. They both need a, a miracle of God. Okay, so I want you to understand that when we talk about apologetics, uh, one apologist said it this way, apologetics is just clearing the room of all the smoke so we can get down to the real issues. But at the end of the day, it's a miracle. Or another illustration might be uh, this. Uh, this was uh, an image from the Night of the Living Dead, which was the first zombie movie uh, ever put out in the U.S., um, 1968. Uh, there were a bunch of zombies. And, you know, Quay and I have talked about this before. You know, I don't know if you, it's kind of died down, but for a while there, there was a big hype on zombie movies and zombie shows, Walking Dead, and all these kind of things. And it's like, why? Why is that? Um, I think there's an inward knowledge that people know um, it's something they fear, uh, but I also think it's something they know they are. Because Paul says that, and, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So, <clears throat> they're dead, but they're walking around. That's the definition of a zombie, right? That's what the unbeliever is. That's, that's who you're talking to when you're dealing with unbelievers. 
But when I say spiritually dead, um, don't think that I'm saying they're, they have no capacity for knowledge or volition. Far from it. When we say spiritually dead, we mean, we mean morally enslaved. And one uh, apologist said, maybe the atheist cannot find God for the same reason a thief cannot find a policeman. <laughs> right? He has a vested interest in not finding a policeman. And the unbeliever has a vested interest in not finding a God. Right? You're not dealing with a blank slate. Okay? So, um, and G.K. Chesterton said it like this, the first effect of not believing in God, in God is that you lose your common sense and can't see things as they are. And that's true. Because we live in God's world, if you're going to deny his existence, your whole life is going to be a contradiction. You're living contrary to the way things really are. Right? So, um, and, um, and Paul puts it this way in Corinthians, uh, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So I, I really want to, there's, there's a great liberty in this, uh, if you recognize this. It's not up to your debating skills and your prowess of mental achievement. It's, it's a miracle of God. The, the, the unbeliever, the natural man, does not receive the things of God. He won't. Uh, earlier in that same uh, book, uh, Paul says, you know, we are the aroma of death to some and the aroma of life to others. Um, to those who are called, we're going to be the aroma of life. Um, but see, as, as a Christian, anytime I'm before an unbeliever, uh, because I believe God is providential and he's, he's sovereign and ruling everything, the fact that that unbeliever is in front of me gives me every reason to believe God has put him there to hear the gospel and means to save him. Why shouldn't I believe that, right? Um, so, anyway, um, okay, because of that, uh, the step four, our last step for effective apologetics is reason with unbelievers to shut their mouths, but trust God to open their hearts, okay? Uh, that's a biblical concept, you know. Uh, uh, I think it's Peter talks about, you know, living in such a way that the mouths of the unbeliever would be silenced, right? They would have nothing to say. And that's what we're trying to do in our apologetic method. We're trying to trying to show them that they don't have an argument. They don't have a defense, as uh, Romans 1 said, right? They are without excuse. On apologetus, they're without excuse. Um, so that's what we're trying to do, um, but we've got to trust God to actually open their hearts. We can't do that part. We just can't do that part. But remember this, this, these words of Paul. He said, so then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Greg Kokel uses the illustration of putting a pebble in their shoe. Um, and that's what you're doing. You know, you're putting a pebble in the shoe of the unbeliever that's just going to annoy them. Uh, when my wife and I first got married, we used to listen to Unshackled. Has anybody ever listened to Unshackled? Yeah, it's an old radio program from Moody Bible Institute, and they would dramatize people's salvation stories. And invariably, in the story, there was some Christian that the unbeliever met, and he shared the gospel with them. And what the Christian saw was the unbeliever blowing up in his face and calling him a fool and an idiot. But, but what you see in the dramatization is that that word that the Christian spoke to him hounded him for years. He could never get it out of his mind. It would come back to him throughout his life. That might be what, what's happened uh, when you talk to somebody and they have that response. Remember last week when we did Mars Hill and he got to the resurrection of Christ at the end, they mocked him, they laughed. But some believed 
right? So uh, leave that up to the Lord and it will be much more relaxing when you, when you go to talk to unbelievers. You won't feel like, oh, I, I gotta save this person. They're gonna go to hell. It's gonna be my fault. No, it's not. The Lord is good. The Lord is faithful. And he's already revealed himself enough to completely condemn them. They're without excuse. They know he's here. You're just uh, aligning yourself with that testimony and, and giving him more. Okay. Okay. But how are we going to do this? How are we going to shut the mouths of the unbelievers? Well, uh, Greg Bonson used to say, you let the unbeliever talk long enough and they'll hang themselves, right? Because of their own inconsistencies. And so that's what you're going to do. Um, asking questions to uncover the inconsistencies in their worldview. Um, and Quay and I, are, we're tentatively going to do some mock dialogues for you tonight. We haven't practiced them, so I don't know how they're going to go. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get you. Yeah. <laughs> Who said you're going to be on that side? <laughs> um, but, but asking questions is probably the single greatest thing you can do because it shows respect for the person you're talking to, first of all, because you want to hear from them. You're not just blabbing, blah, 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 like I'm doing. You're just talking, 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 right? You're asking them, well, um, why do you believe that? You know, when they, when they say something, don't immediately just answer them and give them what you think. Why do you believe that? Or uh, what do you base that on? What's, what's, your, what's your reason for coming to that? Uh, or where did you get that idea? Because you'll find a lot of people have been exposed to some really awful doctrine, some bad theology, and they're coming at something that you don't even believe in. And so when you ask these kind of questions, like, I don't believe that either. That's awful. Um, you know, that's horrible. Uh, what makes you think that? A lot of these questions are very similar, right? But, but you can see there, there's different uh, situations when you would ask these, these type of questions. Um, how do you know that? That's a really good one, right? Because they're going to be making assertions um, oughts. Well, that's not right. You ought to do this. You ought, well, how do you know that? Like, what do you base that on? What's your, what's your, what's your foundation? Um, well, what do you mean by that? This is a really important one. Um, defining terms is really important uh, because they're often saying one thing but meeting another or they're not meeting what you mean. And so making sure to define terms is really, really important. Um, can you give me an example of that? I use this one online all the time when I'm in debates uh, because people will often uh, come on and they'll say, oh, well, you know, Calvinists always do this. Like, give me an example. Like, wh- what do you mean? Silence. <laughs> they, just, they just disappear. Or the example they give has nothing to do with Calvinism or whatever it is we're talking about, you know. It's just some idiot some, you know, saying some nasty thing, you know. It's like, that's not, that's not Calvinism. That's not scripture. You know, so give me an example of that. Or uh, can you explain what you mean? Um, all of these questions will, will help you get to um, what their worldview is. And when they talk, they'll start to, you'll start to pick up inconsistencies. Uh, one more. What led you to believe that? Oftentimes, it, this is a really interesting thing you've probably discovered in your interaction with unbelievers, a single event in their life their dad got mad at them one time at church, you know, and they hated God ever since. You know, like, it's, it's amazing. They got this one event, and, and they just built their whole theology off of that one event. Um, getting down to that uh, recognizes their dignity as an image bearer of God, um, 
you know, recognizes that they have a mind, that they're made in the image of God, and you're trying to draw them out to find out who they are, where they're coming from. You're not just there to give your spiel, right? You're there to, to bring the gospel to a real live human, right? That's what you want to do. And the reason all of these things are important is because Job tells us uh, that, or God tells us in Job, who has put wisdom in the mind? Who has given understanding to the heart? It's a rhetorical question God has, right? And so people have this instinctive nature to be consistent. They want to be consistent. And so when you're asking questions, they want to be consistent uh, with their own worldview. And, they, and as you ask more questions, a lot of times they haven't even thought about why they believe what they believe, uh, how they got to where they got. And when you draw them out, then all of a sudden you're going to start to see they've got inconsistencies, and they'll see it too. And they've probably seen it in their quieter moments, but they pushed it down. And now you kind of bring it to the surface. So one of the best ways you can see inconsistencies and arbitrariness in the unbeliever is through logical fallacies. And so logical fallacies, let me just take a sip of water, are when we violate logic, right? Um, We're doing something that goes against logic. And the reason this is so important is because, as we talked about last week, the image of God, we're made in the image of God who is eternally self-conscious, is eternally uh, subjective and objective, fully knowing himself, knowing all things uh, exhaustively. And so he is the ground for truth, and he never contradicts himself. And made in the image of God, we recognize that when something contradicts itself, it's called the law of non-contradiction, we violated something, and we know it's wrong. And so if you could point that out to the unbeliever, that he's, he's committing a logical fallacy, it's very powerful in closing their mouth. Again, you can't, you can't convert them, but you can close their mouth and they can say, okay, that's a good point. Or the, more, more often than not, they just get mad at you. Um, but, um, and they do this one. Uh, so um, personal attack, um, ad hominem. This is probably the most common, or one of the most common. Uh, the phrase is from a Latin word that me- literally means to the man. So the fallacy is so named because it directs an argument against the person making the claim rather than the claim itself. The critic hopes that the people will reject the opponent's claim simply on the basis that there's something objectionable about the person making the claim. So it looks like this. That can't be true because you're an idiot, right? Now, have they justified their point? No. They've just made an assertion and it's a personal attack. You're an idiot. And so whatever you're saying is, is stupid. Well, that's not an argument, right? That doesn't, that doesn't prove anything. Very, very popular one, especially when you've said something that uh, convicts them. Um, you know, they, they get really, can, can often get really nasty. Um, fallacy of personification, or, or sometimes philosophers call it reification. Uh, and we heard this one last week. Um, reification is attributing a personal characteristic to something that is impersonal. Uh, perhaps you've heard the old saying, it was an old margarine commercial, uh, it's not nice to fool with Mother Nature. You remember that one? I'm dating myself again, I know. <laughs> you guys know that one. You guys know that one. Um, this is an example of reification because nature is an impersonal thing and can't literally be fooled since it does not have a mind, right? Remember last week, that interview where I, I played the two guys talking, and after, at the end of it all, he says, you know, the universe is telling me something, Right? So when you're talking to an unbeliever and they say these kind of things, you've got to stop them on that. Like, what, what do you mean the universe is telling you? Is that a person? 
person? Who is, who's telling you this? It's a fallacy, right? And, and if they base it on that, you, you've got to stop them and say, wait a second, you're attributing personality to something that's impersonal. Okay? You can't do that. Do you believe in a God or do you not? Because you're, you're saying there is no God, it's just the universe telling you this. Um, and that's a different topic, right? So um, the next one is equivocation. Uh, this is a really important one. This is where, remember I said, um, uh, can you explain that or can you define that? You know, where you ask, ask them to define what they mean. Because equivocation is when you change the meaning of a word in the middle of the, of the argument, right? So it would be like this. So we observe evolution, therefore evolution must be true. So we used the word evolution twice, right? But in the first one, we're talking about microevolution, you know, changing within a species. Uh, you have a little dachshund going up to some basset hound or whatever that is, you know, but it's still a dog, right? It hasn't changed. Here we have pond scum uh, going to a human, right? But we're using the same word. And you have to say, well, wait, 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 wait a second. That's not the same word. We're not using the word the same way in both situations, right? You have to stop them on that. Um, begging the question. Uh, this is a really interesting one. We, we kind of talked about this last week a little bit. So this fallacy is committed when a person merely assumes what he or she is attempting to prove or when the premise of an argument depends upon its conclusion. The argument's premises assume the truth of the conclusion rather than support it. So it looks like this. Science has disproved the existence of God because there is no scientific evidence for God. You've just said the same thing in another way. That's begging the question. You haven't proven anything. You've just made two assertions. It was like my example last week. It's bedtime. Why? Because it's time to go to bed. Right? You, you haven't really proven anything. Why? Because I said so. Right? Um, but the caveat that, that we have to make here is that this not, isn't necessarily false. Okay? It's just a fallacy of logic, meaning it hasn't proven its point. So if I say, I'm Chris's husband, and you say, why? Well, because she's my wife. Um, like, I haven't really proven anything, but it's true, right? Um, or if I say, um, the, the Bible is God's word, well, how do you know? Because the Bible says it's God's word, and, uh, and God doesn't lie. Well, you, you've just used the same premise as your conclusion all the way through. But is it true? Yes, it is. Because we said last week that circular reasoning, in circular reasoning, all ultimate truth, uh, truth claims, base their premises on the conclusion by necessity. And I gave the example of trying to prove logic without using logic. You can't. Right? It's an ultimate, it's an ultimate proof, right? Um, but... Uh, but when you're, when you're discussing things with an, with an unbeliever and they make statements uh, that are begging the question, you need to call, call them out on that because they're just reasserting their assertion as a, as a premise, um, you know, and, and it's a logical fallacy and it's not proving anything. Um, a false dilemma, uh, the either-or fallacy. Uh, this is when you, uh, you put out two positions that are mutually exclusive and you say it's either one of these, right? It, and, and it's not true. Like, you could have either the traffic light is red or it's green. But, of course, it could be yellow, right? So here's an example of this. But I'm not actually sure that's a, that's a fallacy right there. That, I think this one's true. Um, either you like bacon or you're wrong, right? Uh, that's, that's an either-or fallacy. 
it, it hasn't proven anything. Oftentimes, there's a lot of other options, you know. And so a lot of times when you're talking to an unbeliever, they'll say things that are uh, just, it's either this or that. It's like, well, well, wait a second. You know, it could be this, it could be that. Um, and so you need to call them on on that. Appeal to authority. Uh, this is a really big one. We've, we've heard of this a lot in the last few years with uh, COVID and, and things like that, right? Uh, here is a claim. Uh, the claim is defended or advanced on the basis of those who believe it. While we may appeal to the arguments of experts in a particular field, just because recognized experts advocate or deny a position does not make it true or false. Okay? Uh, so here's an ad from the 50s. More doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. Right? And notice that they highlighted the, the letters MD. And that... Uh, right, and uh, you probably can't see it, but they they talk about the doctor in this yellow box, how busy he is, you know, and you know he's, he's running around doing all these things, and he just needs a good smoke. Um, and and your your T zone, you know, T for taste and T for throat, and it's just it's just hilarious when you think about how rampant cancer is because of smoking. Um, but it's a doctor, right? This is an appeal to authority because they're saying, well, surely a doctor would would know what's right. The argument is basically uh, Bill believes X, therefore X is true, right? It hasn't proven anything. It's just a, it's just a false appeal to authority. And then uh, lastly, uh, straw man fallacy. The straw man fallacy is when an argument is against a false or distorted version of someone's actual beliefs. And people do this one all the time uh, as a believer. They'll, they'll say things about you uh, and about what you believe, that it's not anything like what you believe. And the reason they do that is because they, they create a straw man. And, and what's a straw man? Well, it's easy to take down. You can set it on fire, you can knock it down. It's not going to fight back, right? Because it's, it's just a straw. Um, an example here would be, you know, this, uh, this guy has got the, the straw man in the ring, and uh, he's a cre- it's a creationist, right? Uh, and so they're flat earthers. They don't believe in science. They don't believe in change. If only the creationists had a brain. That's kind of an ad hominem at the end there. But, you know, um, all of this is, is just a straw man fallacy. None of those are true of, of believers, of Christians. They shouldn't be, right? Um, but they say those kind of things, and you have to call them out on it. Say, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not what we believe. We believe this, you know. And, um, and then they have to deal with the actual facts. So now I'm going to test you. Richard Dawkins has said that 93% of members of the National Academy of Science do not believe in God, so it is not reasonable to believe in God. What is that? Appeal to authority, right. The fact that some scientists believe or don't believe something doesn't prove its accuracy. Okay? How about either you believe in science and reject religion, or you you must remain in blind superstition and reject modern science? False dilemma, right. There are more choices available than the two presented by the person guilty of this fallacy. Okay, Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God because all other religions are wrong and most of the world would be condemned. That's begging the question. Our conclusion should not be embedded in the premises of our argument. Um, How about if Christianity was true, then Christians would not be such hateful, bigoted, racist people. What's that? Strong. Strong. No. Personal 
Yeah, it's an ad hominem. Yep. We're, we're attacking, uh, uh, attacking the behavior of certain people within a particular group does not dis- disprove their position. You know, um, and this is, this is a really uh, good point. You know, when someone uh, is bringing an ad hominem attack against Christians, um, you know, and they say these kind of things to you, you can agree with them. Yeah, that's wrong. That has nothing to do with whether Jesus is the, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you're going to stand before him to give account for your sins. It has nothing to do with that. I'm not here promoting them or this person or that Bible teacher. I'm talking about Jesus. Um, and I'm not promoting myself, right? Uh, Peter, uh, Paul said, you know, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ crucified. Right? That's what we're preaching. Um, so an ad hominem is an attack on the person, and it doesn't actually get to the argument. And then um, we are obligated to listen to what the facts tell us. What is that? That's right. Yeah, personification, right? Reification. Facts don't tell us anything. Um, They must be interpreted according to prior positions within our worldview. Facts don't lead us anywhere. The universe doesn't say anything to us, you know. All of these kind of things are not true. It's not a person speaking. Only persons speak. Inanimate objects don't speak. Um, Okay, so um, that's the uh, first part. Uh, We're going to take a break now. And when we come back, Mr. Hanna is going to go through the Bertrand Russell article. And we're going to talk about that. And then after that, we're going to get to your questions. We've got nine questions, and we're going to go through all nine of them. So five minutes, hard, hard break. Be back in five. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna Say have to, action I'm gonna have to throw ready. that back in there. John, give me an action, please. Hold on, let me get into character. Action. <laughs> With that in mind, uh, it reminds me of something that I said at the beginning when I, I got interested in apologetics. When I would have said I became an authentic believer, because part of my pathway out of the faith was because I had a lot of questions and I want to think deeply and. And I would ask questions, and, and it, it seemed to me people didn't have answers. Now, that that's, could be as much due to my heart and heart as anything, but um, that was when, when I became a, uh, what I would have argued was an authentic follower of Christ. I wanted to have answers, and um, I had actually been in a Sunday school class for young adults the year before where we had gone through this book. Now, I was an unbeliever. I went to Sunday school to appease my mom, um, but uh, I had this book, you know, and so this is like... I was reading my Bible and, and this. Uh, every morning I was getting up and, and like, and I already, I knew a lot of stuff already, so, um, but it just was, it, it's, this is a special book in my heart uh, because of where it came into my life and in, in my, uh, my gospel story or my um, salvation story. So, uh, and it has all these notes and stuff and I occasionally loan it to people and then they laugh at the notes that I put in there and stuff like that. Um, so I brought it just so you could see it in person. Um, and I did, I did bring a couple other books with me, but um, uh, I, I and, and another thing to mention that uh, you know, with Jeremy coming up and pointing that out, uh, the, the logical fallacies. Um, for as much as I talk to a lot of people, I do a lot of uh, apologetics in in as broad as you can think of with a lot of different kinds of people. I really struggle to understand the logical fallacies. Not always. I wouldn't even know that I would be able to spot them. Um, but I think what happens is not only as you, you have to know your Bible first. That's the first thing you have to do. 
You don't need to learn your apologetic first, okay? First, you need to learn this, believe this, trust this, and everything else will flow out from that, right? So you don't even have to know the answer to everything. Like, you, you don't have to be able to, to um, shoot down every argument they're going to throw at you. you. You need to know your Bible, and you need to know um, what, what the gospel is, because then the flaws start to come through. And then these logical fallacies, you'll, you'll know it. You'll be like, okay, well, you can say that, but I know that's not true. And that's where you start asking these questions. I don't have to spot it and say, well, that's begging the question. I mean, if you're, if you're good enough to do that, fine. But uh, I'm not. So I just try to, try to spot it. And, uh, and then you, you can go after that. Um, so keep all that in mind as we uh, take a look here at why I'm not a Christian by Bertrand Russell. And I wanted to read from Romans 1 so that, um, because we've been saying it multiple times, John and I both have, have said this, uh, it is at the heart of presuppositional apologetics is, is the belief that the, the unbeliever, the person you're talking to, knows the truth, right? Because they're created in the image of God. They live in the Father's world. So, so everything, they know it and they're suppressing it. Right, so there's there, that comes from a place here in the Bible. So I thought, well, maybe it'd be good to read it because I think it's helpful when you, when you think of someone who's as brilliant as Bertrand Russell is, how he can make pretty poor arguments as to why he's not a Christian. So uh, if you want to follow along, uh, I will be reading from the NASB, uh, the Non-Arminian Standard Bible, um, <laughs> Romans one. And I'm going to start there in verse 18. I'm not sure how far I'm going to go because this is such a good passage. I I may not stop. I'm not sure. Uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, made understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile futile or futile in their spe- uh, speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies may be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. To do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, 
they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So it's just, uh, uh, this is a striking passage of Scripture that Paul throws out there, you know, beginning with this, you know, he's, this letter would be read to the Roman church. They would have been hearing these things. It's, it's striking that, that they're, they're without excuse. You know, that, that there's nothing different now than there was in the first century that people are like, hold on, hold on. Well, what about this? Well, what about this? Right? This is why the Bible tells us that we need to have a ready defense, a, a, an answer for the hope that's within us. We have to recognize that the person across from us is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness uh, and that God has given them over. You know, he's given them over to their depraved mind, uh, to, to their passions. He's given them over. Uh, so uh, think about that. God helps people resist, and, and if they keep resisting, fine. Go. So, again, though, we, we don't know who that is, right? So I heard a joke one time when I was um, getting, it wasn't a joke, but um, when I was getting converted to Reformed theology through Steve Heitland, uh, I had heard a guy on the radio talking about how he was on an airplane, and the guy beside him struck up a conversation about God and Christianity or something, and, but he knew that the guy wasn't a believer, and um, the guy said, uh, and, and this this person who was telling the story was like, I really wasn't in the mood. I was really tired. I didn't want to talk about God. I didn't, you know, but, but um, uh, unfortunately I'm not a Calvinist. So I knew I needed to, to share, you know, cause, cause in the, in the mind of, of, I'm not just trying to rip Arminians, but I'm just saying in the mind of many is that their argument is what saves people, right? This person, if they leave me and I haven't, Done, uh, done the apologetic, or if I haven't done a good apologetic, then this person goes to hell because of me. Relax. Relax. And it is a great thought that God brings people into your life, right? The person that's across from you, the person who's sitting next to you, the person that you happen across, that, that, that you pick up something that they dropped, you, you just never know. And it makes life kind of exciting yeah. that, that the person... That, that God may save somebody, and it may not even be that moment, and usually it's not. You know, uh, we, we selfishly often want to have it so we can put a little notch, being like, yep, saved another, boom, saved another. No. <laughs> you know, it's more like planted a seed. You know, I, I, you know, it is an exciting thing to think about getting to heaven and having people maybe, I think about the people I'm going to go to. And be, you know that little sentence you said to me when I was 18 years old? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never forgot it. And, and the idea that other people will come to you and be like, you know, you remember when you, you, you gave me that, you know, when I, when I really needed a drink, you gave me a drink. And, and you said, God bless. You know, again, I know sometimes we can think of that as just cheesy, but um, God saves people even, th- even through a cheesy apologetic. So, right. <laughs> so why I'm not a Christian. So uh, I did call this deconstructing why I'm not a Christian, and that's a popular term right now, although it's already fading. It's fading a little bit, but... Uh, you know, because deconstructing Christianity, okay, uh, is, is going to lead to your disaster. So please don't do it. But uh, we are called to de- deconstruct these things. And, and basically what it's saying is we're going to, you take a look at what has been presented to you and you start to look at, you start to look at it and say, okay, well, where, what is that, what, what's being said here? Where are the flaws? Where, where are the logical fallacies? How can this, uh, um, you know, how can I deconstruct this meaning? Um, you know, you've built something and you've given it to me, you've shown it to me, so now let me deconstruct and say, well, what about this? Well, what about this? So, um, 
Now, I'm not sure if you read the introduction to um, this, this. This was technically a speech. Uh, obviously, we're reading it, so it looks more like an essay. But um, it says that uh, Bertrand Russell grew up in a politically progressive uh, line of family, uh, which is why he was, quote, engaged in the betterment of society. So I, I thought it was important before we mm-hmm. really dig in to think about this word progress for a moment, uh, because there's two quick things I think we should recognize with that. Uh, first, to say that, that one is progressive uh, in the, insinuates that society needs to move past something that has been established, right? So we've gotten to this point, and it's time to, to progress to the next point. Uh, now, the reason that we say that is because then it's to, um, uh, it would be counteracted by the conservative belief or the conservative take, because conservative uh, take would be that we need to conserve some laws some positions uh, or, or an institution. So, John, give us the, the definition of progress there. So, to develop a higher, better, or a more advanced stage compared to conserving, which would be to keep in a safe or sound state. Okay. Um, so, the idea is we're here in progressive or progress would say we're here, we need to progress further. Conserve would say we're. We, we need to conserve this. We need to save this. This is where we, we need to be, right? So this is amazing. This is an amazing thing because if you think about those who promote themselves as progressives, uh, it means that any time you stop, you've now, you're now a conservative. So, so in order to be progressive, you have to go to the next stage or you're a conservative. We're watching it happen all the time, right? Because those of us who are conservative, we haven't budged. You know, we, we haven't gotten more right wing as much as they want to say. It's like, no, you've gotten way over here. Right. right? So lots of the lots of the what would have been called classical liberals or even moderates are considered uh, right wing or conservative now because they're not on board with where this line is moving. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, I just find that fascinating because it's it it helps us understand what's happening right now. Right. So if you only believe in gay marriage, you're a conservative. Right. So, so the, the, the just the I mean, I find myself doing it like I'm happy to meet just a regular gay person. Right. Who's, <laughs> who's not an activist. Right. Who's not trying to to say this is what you have to do. Now, it's still homosexuality is still a sin. I'm not saying that. But you, you know what I mean, where you meet a person who's just like, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to mind my own business like this is so. Um, you, but you can see that that what happens is as soon as you land you become labeled as something else. And so that, that person who, to them, being progressive is so valuable or important, they're fearful that, oh, now I'm labeled as a conservative, so, so I have to move on. Uh, you, can, you can see this in the feminist movement, right? Uh, they were pushing to progress past patriarchy and male oppression, right? So, so women have all the same opportunities as men. They should have their own spaces and, and protection from men. They should have their own competitions, just like men. Uh, it was a push for, for what they called equality, since men and women are basically the same. Then along came the transgender revolution, which brought back all the old stereotypes about women. Right? So, so think about it. A feminist pushed the culture to allow women to wear pants instead of a dress when going shopping. But now the transgender revolution pushes that boys should be allowed to wear dresses since they're actually women, and that's what women wear. Right? You can't have a transgender revolution without stereotypes. 
So additionally, what they're, what they're saying makes you a woman is on the inside and not the outside. So now men can compete in the same sports, the same beauty pageants, and they have the same locker rooms and the same bathrooms because it has nothing to do with biology and everything to do with how you feel. So it has up, upended the, the feminist movement, and now uh, feminists, traditional femi- feminists are called TERFs, which stands for Trans-Exclusive Radical Feminists, which is an insult since the accusation is that they're trying to conserve the idea that, that females need to have access to maternity leave since it's now progressive to say that men can get pregnant. You see, so it, it's, this, it, it's this idea that you've got to progress. Now, here's another thought, or second thing about progression, and then we'll get into it. But uh, it, it, it infers that you're headed towards something, right? To, to progress means there is a target, uh, that there is a goal. And so uh, by the world's definition, progressive politics are almost always uh, going to go against Christianity these days, right? So the purveyors of progress have no real goal. Right? They speak of a, utop- a utopia where no one's oppressed or excluded, yet the only way to get there is to oppress and to exclude. <laughs> right? So as Christians, we have a solid foundation, which is the Bible. Right? And we have a goal towards which we are progressing. So uh, it has defined the way and what a family is. It has defined marriage. It has this defined the structure of society, what is right and wrong, and what the future is going to look like. Right? So, so God's made it clear that living within these boundaries that's, that, that have been established by him, that will be how we find human flourishing. Uh, when we're in violation of God's commands, we can guarantee that we're in for self-destruction. So, so when something needs to change biblically, that's when we would say we need to progress. Uh, when it talk, you, know, you talk about slavery, well, we need to progress. And Christians are going to be at the forefront of that, Lord willing. But, but there are times then when... when uh, when you say that uh, we should not kill a baby in the womb, and now that is, uh, you know, now that's been taken back from from federal law, right? So we want to conserve that. We want to conserve that law because that's biblical, right? So, so whether we as Christians, we would say we're only progressing if we're headed towards what the Bible calls us to, uh, and we want to conserve what the Bible has called us to, right? Whereas again, the world is going to say we're we're progressing. And they, I guess they would argue we're progressing towards utopia uh, at the destruction of, of all that's around us. So I wanted to say all that because I do think it's important to know that this is a brilliant man, right? Bertrand Russell. And, and yet the arguments are, are pretty garden variety and, and uh, extremely weak in, in, in some areas. So uh, there's three major points to his address. Uh, first, what is a Christian? Then, then he kind of breaks it down into these two areas, uh, why I do not believe in God and immortality, and why I do not think that Christ was the best and wisest of men. Okay, so, so the first one, and what is a Christian? So in order for him to explain why he isn't a Christian, he wants to define Christianity for you so he can tell you why he isn't one. Right? So he actually makes some statements that I felt like we could agree with. One of his opening points is that Christianity is no longer what it was back in the days of Augustine and Aquinas. Uh, He says, if you want to look, if you have your paper with you, it's it's a page one. I didn't get this to John uh, because I decided to do it here, but uh, he he writes um, uh, in those days, talking about uh, Augustine and Aquinas. In those days, if a man said he was a Christian, it was known what he meant. 
You accepted a whole collection of creeds which were set out with great precision. Every single syllable of those creeds you believed with the whole strength of your convictions. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. And that's a statement we can get behind, right? So, so back then, a professing Christian accepted, believed, and acted upon what the Bible and the creeds uh, uh, from the Bible that, that came from it. Um, so so uh, what's not true based on his assumption, though, is that there wasn't anybody still making those arguments in the early 20th century when he made his, this address in 1927. He's assuming that, that all of Christianity has progressed past this you know, narrow view of what it meant to be a Christian, uh, and, and so therefore now that isn't what it means to be a Christian anymore, right? Because there's always going to be resistance. We're always going to resist in every era when we see people who, who are not being biblical, who this isn't Christian any longer. So, so no matter how much they change, we, we're not going to let them reinvent, reinvent these positions. So he's essentially saying, well, Augustine and Aquinas are in the past, we're in the present, and Christians these days, you know, we used to be able to know exactly what they were, so, so he's going to help us understand, which he has to do because he's going to explain why he's not a Christian. He has to tell you what he's talking about when he says a Christian. So uh, he's not basing it on biblical Christianity, though. He's basing it on, on basically his opinion or on what he thinks Christians believe nowadays. Uh, and it does... It does represent one of our uh, logical fallacies. Does anybody want to take a stab at what that might be? You create something that's, that's artificial, and then you burn it down. <laughs> Straw man, yeah. So, so he's going to create. He's going to tell you what a Christian is, so then he can, he can come after it. You know, there, there's, a, there's a flaw from the start in this whole thing. Um, and that means the rest of the argument is going to be flawed. And, and I do believe that the straw man argument is one of, the, one of the first and foremost when it comes to Christianity, right? So you think about when you hear it, I'm not a Christian because they're all hypocrites. I'm not a Christian because they're too judgmental. I'm not a Christian because they're self-righteous, right? So, so the, this attack is on people who say they're Christians, but not biblical Christianity, all right? If they're not truly representative of those who truly believe the Bible, then they're not Christians. So he... he um, uh, Russell himself is allowing Christianity to really be watered down. And he, said, he says he thinks this is what the two things that Christians believe. Number one, the existence of God and immortality. And number two, you must have some kind of belief about Christ. Okay, so two, two quick things to point out there. You, you don't have to believe that Christ is God to be a Christian in, in Russell's view. You just have to believe that he was a good guy. You know, pretty good guy, pretty good moral guy. It's, it's, it's right in here in, in the opening part of his address. Uh, he, second, he highlights that preaching and teaching about hell was always a primary component to Christianity. But he mentions that it basically had ceased to be a primary issue. Thus, he wasn't saying you had to believe in hell anymore to be a Christian. Okay, that was in 1927. Okay, so uh, that, that just seems shocking to me. That, that already the, the, the seeker-sensitive folks, uh, as we're, we're talked about on Sunday, were already saying, people get turned off by hell. Let's, let's just not bring that into our preaching anymore. To, to the point that he's saying, I'm not even going to say you have to believe in hell to be a Christian. Okay, so you don't have to believe Jesus is God, and you don't have to believe in hell to be a Christian. This is the straw man he is assembling that he's going to ultimately tear down. Is there, is there any points right now that, that from that early one, uh, I'm, I'm talking too much, I wanted to let you guys 
figure that out. Is there anything you want to say that within your apologetic you would say to somebody who says that? What would you say if somebody said, um, uh, well, well um, you don't have to believe, to be a Christian, you don't have to believe that Jesus was God. Is there anything you'd say to that person? Yeah, that's, that's not what I'm defending. Like the, 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 to say that you don't have to believe in that Jesus is, is God is not a Christianity that I would be defending. That would be the first It's thing. not enough just to say he's a pretty good moral no, guy? No, not at all. But is that a bad thing to be a good moral guy? Not at all. It's just not the Christ I'm, I'm promoting. What's the Christ you're promoting? He's, he's, he's one of the persons of the Trinity, of the eternal God. He's always existed. He's the creator of everything. Well, then you did, you guys said the existence of God, so you, you kind of said... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well. Well. Then. Then. What about hell? Do you have to believe in hell to be a Christian? Yeah. Absolutely. Even how cruel and evil that is. Yeah. yeah we'll get into it. <laughs> okay. Uh, so. So you always get into like you know some of them right away hey, near the end of this he you know he talks about Socrates and Buddha being more moral more wise than Jesus like like so so the idea of, the, of a moral and wise person is just a bad argument because you're like who cares like there's there's we wish there was more moral and wise people but but it doesn't make you the savior doesn't make Christianity true these are all those arguments so but let's just take a look we'll jump in here to um, the existence of God so I just have it broken down in those two so in the existence of God he, he goes to, to five arguments the first is what's called the first cause argument Right, so this is the belief that all effects have to have a cause. Right, you've heard you've heard of the law of cause and effect. Right, so so anytime you see an effect, you see something spinning, there has to have been a cause, meaning something put it into motion. Right, so it's the it's the law of cause and effect. So in order to create or set everything into um, into motion, or to, to for for everything to go from nothing to something, there has to be an effect. There has to be a cause. And therefore, God is the first cause. Okay, so, so Russell's argument, uh, which is on page two, if you, if you want to look at it, um, uh, it's right near the, where it gets the natural law argument heading. Uh, this is what he says. He says, there's no reason why the world could not have come into being without a cause. Nor, on the other hand, is there any reason why it should not have always existed. There's no reason to suppose the world had a beginning at all. The idea that things must have a beginning is really due to the poverty of our imagination. Therefore, perhaps, I need not waste any more time upon the argument about the first cause. So uh, I found this interesting that he, he doesn't, he's not even really arguing. He's like, it's not really worth our time because there's no reason to believe that the, that the universe would have to have a, uh, a first cause or that it hasn't always existed. There, of course, there's a million problems with that. Um, so I... I'll give you a chance maybe to, to talk about those later. The second one is the natural law argument. Uh, this is a belief that because of natural laws like gravity, gravity, inertia, uh, measurement, it requires someone to put them into place to make the universe work. Uh, so there's these natural laws that are just observable. They just, they just are in a sense. Uh, so at the bottom of page two, um, into page three, Russell says about this, we, we now find that a great many things we thought were natural laws are just human conventions. You know that even in the remotest depths of stellar space, there are still three feet to a yard. That is no doubt a remarkable fact. 
but you'd hardly call it a natural law. Uh, he does then say later, uh, Russell argues that they are statistical averages such as would emerge from the laws of chance. So uh, that's, that's interesting because he said it's, it's a remarkable fact that three feet equals a yard no matter where you go in the universe, but it's not a natural law. Uh, in fact, he says the law of chance would, would, is how this could come out. But, you know, if you know what chance is, it means there's, it's unpredictable, right? That's what chance is. You know, so the argument is if you roll a dice thousands of times or millions of times, you, you're bound to get some predictable pattern. But that's, that's not really chance then, right? Because chance is that chance. Like, that's what chance is. You know, chance is oftentimes uh, shown as a person standing on a rock rolling and spinning fortune's wheel. You know, it, it's uh, supposed to be out of, um, out of chance, which is not predictable, right? Uh, third one is uh, argument from design. Uh, so the argument from design is that the world functions so well because it was designed that way. Uh, if there were any slight changes into how it works... Uh, everything would crumble, everything would, would fall. You know, you've heard that before. If the earth was any further away uh, from the sun, we'd freeze to death. If we were any closer, we, closer, we would burn to death. So, so Russell argues uh, that there is no evidence of design about it. He flat out says that. His proof is that an, an omniscient and omnipotent God would not produce the KKK and fascists over the course of millions of years. Uh, additionally, he argues that science is in decay and will no doubt result in a final something that is uh, dead, cold, and lifeless. But he says, this is his argument, is that no one is truly worried about what will happen millions of years from now. Okay, so, so essentially he's saying if over millions of years this is the best an omniscient, omniscient and omnipotent God can come up with, well, you know, it's a poor design. Uh, and then on page four, he does say there, therefore, although it is, of course, a gloomy view to suppose that life will die out, it is, it is not such as to render life miserable. It merely makes you turn your attention to other things. So, so essentially, he's, he's dodging this argument as well, because he's just saying, um, yeah, it's kind of gloomy to think that, the, that there's no purpose to life and it's just going to die out. But it's millions, from years from, millions of years from now, and nobody really cares about that. Um, uh, Number four, moral arguments for deity. Uh, the moral argument would be that there is no way to know right and wrong apart from a moral lawgiver. Right, so, so Russell basically says two things here. Uh, one, he's not convinced that there really is a difference between right and wrong. Uh, he said that doesn't concern him. And if, and if, he, if there is, then uh, God, made them, uh, God made them both, right and wrong. And if he made both, then he's wrong for making things wrong. But, but to declare him wrong for making things wrong requires another God by which to measure the wrong of that God. So, so his conclusion, which is on page four right before the uh, injustice argument, he says, there is a good deal to be said for that, and I am not concerned to refute it. All right, so, so again, uh, like, you know, throwing, I'm not sure what logical fallacy this falls under, but, but you know, throwing it out there, and then, and then just not, you're not defending your position and you're just saying, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really going to spend time refuting it. It's just an assertion. It's an assertion and, yeah, you, you, you you're just... You have You just asserted it. Yeah. And, and again, you know, this, he's giving a, a, a presentation, so, you know, I can imagine sitting in the audience being like, hold on, I have an answer, I'd like to ask you this. 
Uh, last one, argument for, remedi- uh, for the remedying of injustice. Christians would argue that God and eternal life would be necessary for there to be ultimate justice. Right? Someone might get away with something in this life or on this earth, but in the next they will pay for their sins and be rewarded for their obedience. Uh, his argument against that, uh, if this world is unjust and it's all that we know, then what makes you think the next one will be just? So it's a false hope that there will be anything like cosmic ju- justice in the future. That's, that's his argument, is that this is all we know, this world's unjust, what makes you think the next world will be just? So he concludes that people only believe because they want comfort and the feeling that a big brother is watching out for them. It's what they were taught and it's what they've, all they've ever known. So is there anything that you immediately would, would say to any of that that would stand out to you? You're, you're apologetic. For Mr. Russell. Dr. Russell, probably. Come on. Come on. What would you say? Anything. Jeremy. Even a question. Give so many things. Um, (laughs) Yeah, just give us one or two. Uh, For starters, uh, the first cause argument, or also cosmological argument, he makes the point that the universe could have existed forever, which we know to be false, just logically speaking, because if the universe existed forever, an infinite timeline in the past... We wouldn't. Have, we would never reach today. Correct. That's impossible. We would have blown up already. And then, but what's funny is he uses that exact argument in support of his argument from design, saying we don't care about what happens millions of years from now. Right. Well, that millions of years from now would have already happened if time was infinitely in the past. Right. Right. And then he uses in his moral argument, he basically asserts that morals don't matter; there is no right and wrong. But then he uses that later. Correct. Against Jesus, and also in remedying injustice, like right. well, there is there is no injustice if there are morals. Right. Right. And you can't measure Jesus on morality if you've already taken out the original. <laughs> right. right. Good, Jeremy. Yeah. Yeah, the first cause argument is, is always, uh, you know, I, I've used that with people who believe in reincarnation. Because you say, well, how long has reincarnation been around? Like, well, eternity. I'm like, well, then we will already be perfect, all of us. Because we've already cycled through everything. Right? Or, yeah, the, the universe would have already blown up and been extinguished because eternity is eternity, thus... If it was if it was uh, going to blow up in in a billion five billion years, well, then it would have already happened. Right. Right? So it has to have a beginning, right? right? There's something in mathematics. I forget what it's called. There's something in mathematics that basically says like you can't be infinite only one direction either, right. like because by definition, if you're infinite in one direction, you're infinite in the other. Right. right. There was not infinite. Right. There had to be a point of yeah, so you can't beginning. Reach, you can't reach the end point. Right. Over an infinite timeline. Right. 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 And that's always the question: What was there before the Big Bang? Right. Yeah, where where is right now in relation to no beginning? Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. yeah, good. Yes, and the moral arguments. That's what I always bring up is you know if somebody says well if it's unjust here it's going to be unjust in 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 the next world and you're like how do you know what's just and unjust like how are you defining that what's your what's your moral uh, standard by which you're coming up with that yeah Don. You were at this presentation he gave, weren't you, in 1927? <laughs> I think you called out from the audience. You're like, BS! <laughs> yeah, the arguments, if, if what you say is what is on the paper, um, what he is saying is what all of them say, and that is, yeah, this is a thing, but it doesn't matter. This is a thing, but it doesn't matter. Right. This is a thing. 
And that's what all the arguments are from the atheistic science side. Right, right. Yeah, that's a problem. I mean, yeah, I don't know where the big ball came from that had the big bang. Right. But it doesn't matter. Right. Right. You know, and too many people, we sit in the audience in all of these great minds and we say, well, I guess it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where we need to really be considering these things and say, it it does matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, why are you giving the lecture? Right. Yeah. Exactly. That was the first thing when I read it. I, when he when he yeah. brought up the KKK and the fascists, it's like, so, like what? Like he 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 said them because he knew that would resonate with mm-hmm. the audience that these are horrendous things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On what standard? Mm-hmm. Like because he, he goes like you say he goes on to say there's no right or wrong. Mm-hmm. It's like well why is this bad? Mm-hmm. It's just. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that is one of the points we, we I, I made it after John after John's first session where he talks about you know in the in the evolutionary framework there was nothing it exploded, uh, humans came up out of the, uh, the the soupy mix and walked on two legs and life had so it began with no purpose, then it had purpose and then you die and then you become stardust and you have no purpose like like so so they're trying to sell you on purpose right now like you just got to be good you got to do good to people. The betterment of society, and you—you you know, the first argument I ever make is, how do you know it's better, not worse? How do you know loving your neighbor isn't making things worse, <laughs> right? And if you—if you believe in the survival of the fittest, actually, we should—we should execute all these people who are who are use, utilizing our food, who are handicapped, because they're not going to help us out. In fact, we should probably do that to the homosexuals because they're not going to procreate. You know, we're going to—we're going to die out if we—if we keep all these people fed. We could feed a lot more people if we just eliminate the people who are. Uh, taking up all the resources that we need. Like, that's survival of the fittest, right? In true survival of the fittest. So the fact that somebody would say, well, no, that's wrong. Well, why? Where did you get that? It's wrong to execute people that are weaker or, or lacking or, um, you know, uh, or, or, like, don't, don't, aren't going to be able to contribute to society? Like, so, so where does the notion that we shouldn't execute those people come from? Like, that, that should be the bigger question. So, uh, and, and if you argue, well, no, that's an evolutionary trait because we've become more humane, I'm like, well, then that would be devolutionary because we, we've actually moved past the idea that we need to, to keep the fittest, we need to save the fittest. Or empathy or sympathy, these things don't fit at evolutionary models. All right, I'm getting off. John, I'm already over, sorry. Character of Christ. Okay, so, so Russell goes to his second thing, is the character of Christ. So he said, you know, this belief in the existence of God and immortality, you know, I don't need it. This is why I'm not a Christian. And then the character of Christ. So now he comes after Jesus, and I feel even, like, I feel dirty even saying that, you know. Uh, like, like the, defect, like, the defects of Christ's teaching. Yikes. I don't want to be too close to him when he's saying that kind of stuff. But, uh, so he points out, first of all, you know, the scriptures that he could agree with that Jesus said, right? Turn the other cheek. Judge not, lest you be judged. Give to him who asks, and don't turn away from someone who wants to borrow, go and sell all you own and give to the poor, right? And he sh- it shouldn't surprise you that he leaves out the second half of that verse, which is uh, sell all you own and give it to the poor and come follow me. Come and follow me. Uh, he picks it and chooses a few that fit his beliefs, uh, which isn't a surprise. Lots of people do that. Uh, I think it was Shakespeare that said, anyone can pull any verse out of the Bible and make it mean anything they want it to mean. Uh, so... Uh, so you know that he's able to do that. So he goes to uh, the defects of Christ's teaching, 
And he begins by saying it's quite doubtful that Jesus even existed. Uh, If he did, though, he had a lot of problems with his teaching. Russell only gives one example, though. Uh, He brings up the times that Jesus made statements about his second coming being imminent. Okay, and and this is like a a theological thing to talk about. But, uh, you know, he uses three or four different examples of that. Uh, He said, you know, one one time Jesus says uh, that some standing in his presence would not taste death, death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Right, so Russell says that Jesus couldn't have been very wise since he thought that his second coming would occur before, uh, uh, before these many people who were living, before they even died. Right, so, so he says that lack of wisdom led to bad advice, such as don't worry about tomorrow, uh, because today has a, its problems of its own, right? But don't worry about tomorrow because I'm coming back. You know, that, that was his argument as to why Jesus not only failed in uh, transmitting information that he's going to be coming back soon, but also then that affected other advice that he gave because uh, then it made everybody think, well, he's coming back soon, so I don't need to do this, this, or this. Um, I thought it was interesting that he, there, there was only one, and that this was it, uh, because we have, we have answers for that. Uh, it, it's most likely, especially there, that Jesus was talking about his ascension, Right, and so uh, you'll see him in his glory because he, he's ascending into heaven. Uh, but and, and they're all still alive, obviously, because they're they're witnessing it. So there, and there's some uh, some other arguments with that. But uh, for that for him to bring that one up uh, was interesting. Then then his second point was the moral problem of Jesus, right? And and here he only has one point too. It, it's Jesus's belief in hell, right? Uh, his direct quote is. I do not myself feel that any person who's really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Right? So, so to, G, uh, to Russell, Jesus is responsible for the cruelty that results from people who believe in hell. Uh, so, so, you know, what is true? Jesus talked a lot about hell. And so the question is, does he talk a lot about hell because he hates people and he wants to see them die? Or, or if you knew there was a hell, wouldn't it make sense to try to keep people out of it? Right? So uh, this, was, this was Russell's, that was his main point, that he, he basically couldn't uh, respect or think that a truly humane person would, would believe in hell. Uh, he had a few other lesser matters where he talked about where Jesus sends the demons into the 2,000 pigs. Um, he argues that Jesus could have just sent the, the demons away without killing the pigs, <laughs> uh, which is interesting if you read it because they asked to be put in the pigs, right? The demons are like, because they know the other option is uh, eternal torment. You know, they, they, were getting a, they were getting a buy, so to speak, uh, for, the, for the time being. So they knew if they gave them the pigs, it, I just did talk this. That's why it's like, I won't get into it. But, uh, he also brings up the fig tree. When, remember when Jesus curses the fig tree so he can't give figs anymore? And he thinks, how mean. Jesus. How mean to that picture. Why would somebody do that? Um, um, So, uh, so right before, uh, right before he gets to the emotional factor here of the church, Russell states, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. I think I should put Buddha and Socrates about him in those respects. So, uh, any, any apologetic here for, for uh, what he sees in the flaws of Christ in his lack of wisdom or his lack of morality? Yeah, Jeremy. 
Get him. Well, I already mentioned earlier that yeah. he's now applying a standard he's right. already dismissed earlier. Right. Um, but he also is, um, where was I going with that? Um, I forgot, I just lost my train of thought. I'll come back to you. Okay. Somebody else got uh, one you'd want to give him for the defects of Christ's no. teaching? It's kind of hard because he actually doesn't give you a whole lot to work with here, does he? But go ahead, Jeremy. Uh, he's applying a standard to Jesus and or God that, it, that you would apply the same standard to a human, like a regular person. That right. Not, you can't do that. Like, right. God is not us. Right. So there are several things that God can do that we cannot do. Right. It would be sinful for God to do it, but not sin, or it would be sinful for us to do it, but not for him to do it. Right. You know, he can do it, we can't. Like, there's, you can't apply the same moral standard to God you apply to us. Right. Right. And he does that a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Krista. The, um, argument about there being no hell. Um, I went to a Christian, Christian college, and that was, like, a huge thing. Like, that was, like, a big argument there that there then there ultimately really isn't justice. Um, so so then you kind of get into all of that, and then if there's no justice, then um, there's no love, and then like you could go on and on and on about it. But, um, but that was a big, I feel like that's a big argument that you hear even now, because that would have been 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's still a very um, major argument at mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. university. So, mm-hmm. um, that was the, I was going to say, was that the Rob Bell era? That yes. Love love Rob Wins? Was, What's it called? Yeah, love Wins? Yeah, love wins. That was yeah. like a huge book that everyone was reading. Yeah, wow. Was we like, don't actually have to preach hell anymore. Yeah. No. So, yeah, Jesus did, I though. I mean, and I know, actually, I know a lot of people that I started college with who by the end of college, they lost their faith because of those mm-hmm. arguments yeah. being like, mm-hmm. that they preeminent. Yeah. Um, wow. So, wow. Um, yeah, so that's a big, that's a big one. Mm-hmm. That yeah, so think about, think about Russell's argument. He's beginning by saying his version of what makes you a Christian, you don't even have to believe in hell. Uh, so he's, he's not even talking about standard Christianity. You know, he, he's got a strong... It's almost like he should have added that in there if he wanted to really go after Christians, but he goes after Jesus for that. So, um, uh, yeah, it's good. And, and uh, not believing in hell... Um, See, and this is—I had—I just had this conversation with somebody last week. I was saying, well, here's the problem: is um, uh, you're assuming we're all good, you know? Like, there's that first presupposition, right? Of of we're a blank slate, or that we're actually good, and therefore none of us deserve hell, and therefore, so but God lets some some people go to hell. Why would He do that? But it, but it, you know, you always turn that on in the reverse: is that everybody deserves hell. You know that that we we are we are all guilty, and and God was clear in the Garden of Eden that the wages of sin is death, uh, or the the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Sin will bring death. So so if you say we're all guilty, then then it kind of reverses that and say so why are some saved? And the person who goes to hell isn't isn't getting what they don't deserve. It's the person who's going to heaven who isn't getting what he de- he deserves or she deserves. But but somebody paid for it. Christ, right? So Christ pays for it. He pays the, 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 the penalty. And that, that's why it's, it's an amazing exchange that you put your faith in Christ. He's paid it. 
He also lived the perfect life that you, you didn't live. That's what you get. That's what you get then. Um, so uh, I'm not going to go over all of these, um, the flaws of the church, but you know, he talks about the, the emotional factor, because we got to get to the question, John, sorry. Uh, the emotional factor, uh, you know, he basically believes that people believe religion uh, based on emotional grounds. Um, uh, he actually thinks they're, they're immoral um, uh, because of this. Uh, he, he says, like, um, uh, anyway, uh, another thing, secondly, was how the churches have retarded progress, which, am I allowed to say retarded? Um, slowed down progress, you know, we would be moving at such a fast pace, and I wouldn't use the word retarded in here if I wasn't a Christian, so, um, uh, so, but the idea is it's slowing things down, that we're, we're on the way, he says, you know, it comes at the expense of human happiness, Right, and and he asks he asks this question: What what has human happiness to do with morals? The object of morals is not to make people happy. Uh, that that's his argument. Uh, and I had here in my notes is like the the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Right. So so if that's our chief end, then then to glorify God, we 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 follow His commandments. We we uh, we live according to His His precepts, and and with that and through Christ, we enjoy Him forever. Uh, he's like the serpent in the garden, Russell is, right? You'll not surely die. In fact, you'll be happy. You live without these morals. You live without this God. You live without this Jesus who wasn't even really moral himself. You'll be happy. Uh, he talks about fear, uh, which he calls the foundation of religion, you know, this need for us to, to have our bigger brother who's God to look over us. Uh, and then lastly, uh, he says what we must do. He said we must stand upon our own feet, Look fair and square at the world. It's good facts, it's bad facts, it's beauties and it's ugliness. See the world as it is and not be afraid of it. Uh, so, so to that I just said, it's true. We, we, we shouldn't fear the world. We shouldn't fear Bertrand Russell. We shouldn't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who can cast body and soul into hell because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, yeah, let's just do some of these. All right, so... Um, and, and you know, one of the things you could you could have said to to every one of the, those things is, well, what does it matter, Bertrand? I mean, your your worldview has no point. Um, you know, uh, one of the apologists I, I follow, um, he often brings up, you know, if you if you pour vinegar on baking soda, and it just fizzes, you know, because that's all you are in your worldview. You're just chemical reactions. Uh, so why should anything you say matter in your worldview, right? And I, so today I got a, a little bit of baking soda out in the kitchen and I put it on a little plate and I poured some vinegar on it. And, and yeah, it fizzed, but it really wasn't very, uh, I was going to bring it tonight to kind of show you this is what the unbeliever thinks he's doing, you know. And just, but it was so unimpressive that I thought <laughs> this really wouldn't even be very impressive illustration, you know. But that's what they believe. And if you press them to that, it's like, Oh, you know, and like he said, you know, a lot of his arguments, he just kind of dismisses like, yeah, it's pretty gloomy, but, you know, we just think on other things. Like, you haven't answered the question. You know? so, anyway, so we're going to get to your questions here in the last uh, remaining time. So uh, there were nine questions that we got, um, and some of them we've kind of already talked about. And, uh, Christy, your question here is, you know, the big one, right? This one is the, the big one that always comes up. Um, and the problem of evil. And I found a, a David Hume, that uh, um, uh, empiricist that I mentioned in the last uh, uh, last session, 
Um, he, he stated the problem very succinctly. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Well, then where does evil come from? That's the problem of evil, right? Um, but this, this one quote by, by Lewis, um, I think just puts, puts a pin in that bubble right away. Because that was his, his problem. And he said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? So when any, anybody brings up this, you know, how could there be evil? What are you basing that on? What do you mean evil? Where's your stand for what evil is? Because Richard Dawkins says the universe we observe is precisely the, has pri precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's what the unbeliever's worldview is. So where does he get the idea of evil? Right? Like you've got to just, you've got to just put it back in their court. What do you mean evil? What standard are you basing it on? Well, human flourishing. Why is that good? You know, uh, Quay was talking about progress, and you'll often hear evolutionists use this phrase, you know, um, nature selects, you know, that's personification, right? Nature is selecting things, and they talk about these good adaptations. Good, what do you mean, good? That's progress. It's, it's, it's assuming some direction, and, and there's only, it's only good if it's in reference to bad. But they don't have that, right? So they're borrowing from our worldview to, to make these arguments. Um, <laughs> this is a, uh, a quote from Cornelius Van Til. Um, the ultimate source of truth in any field rests in him, in God. The world may discover much truth without owning Christ as truth. Christ upholds even those who ignore, deny, and oppose him. A little child may slap his father in the face but it can do so only because the Father holds it on its, on its knee. So modern science, modern philosophy, modern theology may discover much truth. Nevertheless, if the universe were not created and redeemed by Christ, no man could have, uh, give himself an intelligible account of anything. It follows that in order to perform their task aright, the scientist, the philosopher, as well as the theologian need Christ. And see, this is, this is what I'm saying. Like, when they, when they raise the problem of evil, they really have no grounds for calling it evil. You do. You do. You could say, yes, human suffering is bad. Why? Because man has sinned, and pain and suffering came in with that sin. And you can say, this world is not all there is. You know, Bertrand Russell just kind of sloughed that off. He just kind of said, well... You know, Christians like to think there's going to be justice someday, but we have no reason to believe that. Yes, we do. Our Creator told us there's going to be justice one day, right? Um, and, and so when you see pain and suffering today, the Christian can say there will be a day of reckoning. There will be justice that comes. Or um, this is one that, that resonates with me, but I know it doesn't with everybody. There's two attributes of God that would never be seen without sin and suffering, justice mercy. And we love mercy. I mean, we, we make movies about mercy, you know. You, know you, you see this, I just saw one today, this dog waiting, waiting at this uh, food truck. And, uh, you know, he was just waiting there. Nobody knew what it wanted. And finally they gave it some food, and he took the food to his homeless owner, 
uh, and put it down, you know, in front. It's just, it's mercy, right? It's like we love that. We, but, but you can only see mercy where there's pain and suffering, right? It's like, so that was something so glorious in the character of God that he thought it worthwhile making a world that that would be displayed in. Did you know that the only place in the New Testament where the word hallelujah is used, you know where it is? Does anybody know where it is? We say that word all the time. Hallelujah, hallelujah. There's only one place in the New Testament. It's when Babylon the Great is thrown into the pit. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Justice. It's the most glorious thing, right? God's justice will be meted out one day. Right? So so those are uh, those are some. And then our God alone entered into the suffering of his creatures. There's no other religion around who has a God who entered into this pain and suffering. Right? So these are all things that we can we can say to that person that raises, you know, the evil question, the problem of evil. You have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I just yeah, I always open with that. Anytime somebody's making a especially a, a moral claim, well well why? Or or how do you know it's evil? Or how you know? I, I ask people to define things a lot. So, so what do you mean? How do you know that it's evil? How would you define that? Well, it's just wrong that people are starving to death on their streets. Why is that wrong? Based on what? Yeah. And well, because people should have enough to eat. Well, why do you think that? Like, where where is there? Well, because you know, and a lot of times people get to um, well, you know, it's uh, the universe uh, because. Because that's what I'll say is, well, well, then how, how does judgment ultimately come? Well, the universe will sort it out in the end. And you say, well, so, so this, and I do, you flat out say, so this, this thing that exists that has no conscience is just a universe, somehow knows what is just and unjust, and will make sure that somehow this person will pay for what they've done. Um, well, you know, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're making things up. You're calling me crazy because I believe in a triune God, and right. you're saying this personless universe will somehow bring justice. So, right. um, I one of my my main things I look for in in an apologetic is is to use the same argument back, right? right? So I, I was thinking about it today because it happened today, um, and it wasn't exactly an apologetic, but um, this uh, student who I know smokes weed. Uh, although now they don't smoke weed anymore, they smoke a cart, you know, your THC cart or whatever, which I don't even fully understand. I'm getting old. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, we were talking about that, and I was, I was asking questions like, why do you think you smoke? You know, is it, are you, are you scared? Are you, and she goes, well, I get anxious. And I said, what are, you, are you anxious about coming to school? Or, you know, are you anxious about not being high? <laughs> you know, like, what is it that brings this anxiety? And she goes, are you judging me? Like, it... it this kind of feels like judgment. And I go, well, how do you define judgment? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, how, how do you define judgment? Do, do I think it, that there's right and wrong? Yes. Um, uh, do, I, do I think smoking weed is a bad idea? Yes. Like, uh, that, I'm judging your actions for sure. But, but, but then this is how you put it back. You say, are you judging me for judging you? <laughs> Because <laughs> you, you can't make that claim without judging me. If you right. say it's wrong for you to judge me, I'm like, well, you just judged me. So you're wrong too. Right. So let's just admit that we're both going to judge each other and have a conversation. So, yeah. That's, I always look for, for their argument that they're using. And they say, what's well, wrong of you to think people are going to go to hell? And I'm like, so you think it's okay to tell people that they're wrong? Because you just did. Right. Well, no. 
but you just did. <laughs> you know, I had one student say to me, she's like, well, you know, it's important for people to be nice. I just don't understand why people can't be nice. And she's probably one of the nastiest students I've ever met. But uh, I don't understand why people can't just be nice. And then she, we eventually got into a conversation about what happens after you die. She goes, nothing. You just go into the dirt and you die. And I go, then why do we need to be nice to each other? She goes, because you just should. And I'm like, why? Why? Why shouldn't you just do whatever you want to do? You're just going to lie on the ground and rot up anyway. Right. Then the problem is when they say, well, that's a good point, Quay. I'm like, oh, rats. <laughs> so, I'm just kidding. So um, I put these two together because they're, they're both pretty similar. Um, how do you talk to someone who doesn't take you seriously and tries to turn the conversation away from the topic? And how do you respond to people who don't want an apologetic? Both, both of these are basically the same kind of thing. Like they don't, they're not interested in what you're selling, right? They, they don't want to talk about it. And, and this is where um, what I would say to this is, well, first of all, all of these questions are abstracted a little bit to me, right? You know, because I don't know the situations that you're talking about. Right. And you can't do that. Uh, one of the articles I'm going to write soon is called Avoiding the Abstract because we can't do that because nothing is abstracted. Nothing is separated from God's providential work, right? And so when we look at these questions, I don't know the situation. I don't know if, if you're a lousy worker and they don't take you seriously because you're a, a lousy worker. Or, you know, like I don't know if, um, I, like I don't know the circumstances here, right? Um, but let's just say, you know, you're a good upstanding person, you're, you're very uh, respectable, uh, and they just, they just don't want to talk to you. Pray. Just pray. Pray and use every opportunity to plant seeds um, um, and, and, and to love them. Um, I mean, you know, again, this is not a, this is not a, a philosophical game we're playing here. We're, we're, we're playing for souls, you know. We're, we really want them to know the Lord. We want them to have a relationship with the Lord. You can't get them to have a relationship with the Lord if you're not willing to have a relationship with them, right? And so you've got to love them and you've got to pray for them and believe that the Lord hears and believe that they're in your life for a purpose. And don't be afraid to speak, even when they say they don't want to hear it. But don't be rude, you know, with respect, you know. Um, I always, um, you know, I push and push and then when I'll back off when they ask. If they're like, I don't want to talk about this right now. Okay, change the topic. Um, or, or what I'll do, if I know I'm going to see somebody more than once, you, you, uh, you take them pretty far, kind of on that brink of, of exasperation, yeah. and then you just back off. Because right. then the next time you, you go a little bit further. Right. So that's kind of the student I was talking to today. We've had, we've had some pretty deep conversations. So when, when somebody says to me, my head's starting to hurt, it, it's kind of that signal, like, right. I've had enough. So. All right, I put these two together, too. How do you effectively defend the biblical apologetics when someone comes from a worldview that rejects truth in the Bible? And is there any way to reach that person who won't listen to anything from Scripture? Um, so I assume the person meant here, how do you effectively defend uh, the truth of the Bible when someone comes from a worldview that rejects any truth in the Bible? Um, and, and so this is part of what I was talking about last week, and this was one of Bonson's uh, real strengths is he called it the um, impossibility of the contrary, okay? Um, and that's why I was talking so much about the Trinity last week, because there is no other Trinity other than our God, right? And there's no foundation 
for logic. There's no foundation for truth. There's no foundation for love. There's no foundation for all the things that we know instinctively. We know because we're made in the image of God apart from the God of the Bible. And so when people are, are saying, well, they, they don't uh, listen to anything from the scripture, well, that's just not true. I mean, you could say to this person, so, so, so do you believe murder is okay? Well, no. Well, that's in the Bible. <laughs> you know, the Bible condemns murder, so you believe that, right? Um, you know, they're, they're, coming at it from, they're coming at it from a different authority. And you're, you're going to stay firm on the authority of scripture because it is the truth. And you can say, look, uh, you, you can't have a basis for morality. We've talked about that a few times tonight. You know, Bertrand Russell can't have a, a, a basis for saying that this is evil or this is bad or Nazis are bad or fascists are bad or whatever. He can't. He can't say that because he has no foundation. We have the triune God who is love, and love is the basis of all morality um, and is the foundation for all truth and all justice. And so we can say, it is the, the foundation for it. So, you know, and, and the, the scripture is God's gracious revelation to us. He's spoken, you know. Um, so, I, I mean, you know, I, I would ask them what they're, you know, why. I would ask them questions why. You know, why do you reject the Bible? Uh, what's your authority? That's what I would say. Yeah. What, what, you say, I'm not listening to anything that comes from the Bible. I say, then what do you listen to? <coughs> Right, because because you want to know what's their worldview, what's their presupposition, what's what's their apologetic, because then then you go after that, and then you say, well, I listened to the guy who was raised from the dead, and uh, nobody else has done that. Uh, another uh, one thing that I an example I had was um, a guy who who had um, who was like. This was early on in the LGBTQ movement, and was talking about how when I, because I speak against racism that eventually people are going to find out that I'm not pro-LGBTQ and therefore then I'm going to get rejected or people, you know, I'm going to be called a bigot. He was predicting that <laughs> 10, 10, 12 years ago, uh, cause, but he had already given himself over to that. But he said he was a Christian, and, I said, and I, he said, well, I don't understand why you think it's a sin, blah, blah, blah. And I, so, you know, you send the verses, and have you ever heard the, how they're called the clobber verses? Have you ever heard that before? Um, Andy Stanley just used it in his... Yeah, so you, there's five main passages that you use, that two from the Old Testament, three from the New, I think it is, or three and two, one or the other, um, that you use to say, this is what the Bible says about homosexuality. And, the, and what has happened is activists have now called them the clobber verses, so that you're clobbering people over the head with these verses about homosexuality. And, I, you know, I said to him, I said, you wanted me to tell you why I believe homosexuality is a sin. I have to quote from the scriptures right. because... That's the authority from which I determine what sin is. And you don't do that with any other sin, right? So if you want to know why I'm opposed to murder, and I bring up how many different examples from the Bible, or those clobber verses against murder, if I bring up adultery, and I bring up all the verses that talk about adultery, is that clobber verses? It's only with the LGBTQ that you're considered, that you're, you're clobbering someone. And even a lot of Christians have now given themselves over. Andy Stanley, I don't know if you're following that whole thing, but, uh, but he talked about it, their thing about the clobber verses. And he's a pastor. Uh, and, and I'm like, well, but anyway, so, so that's what I would say is, well, then what do you want me to do? You want me to, you want me to defend my position. You're not allowing me to defend it based on what I believe. So, um, so that, that's not fair. You want to have a conversation about this, and you're not allowing me to use my, my authority, my right. source of authority. So. And, 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 and again, if you point out that they do believe 
the things that are taught in scripture, you know, you, you can kind of bypass that. Because again, you remember when uh, last week when Paul was speaking to the at the Areopagus, and, and I said he was quoting scripture. He didn't he didn't say he was quoting scripture, but it was clearly uh, Isaiah 42, right? So you don't have to quote scripture word for word, but you do want to stay very true to what scripture says, and and it will resonate with them, even if they don't on the outside let it, let you know that it does. So this uh, this one uh, came in. Um, and I didn't know what gender dysmorphia was. Um, so if, if God is good and sovereignly in control of how I'm designed and created, why was I born with gender dysmorphia? This person isn't here tonight, but they have a friend who's struggling with this uh, that they're actually going to be talking talking with tomorrow. Um, so, uh, so I looked up uh, gender dysmorphia. <laughs> so body dysmorphic disorder, BDD, also referred to as body dysmorphia, is a mental health condition. It's best described as an anxiety disorder uh, involving a belief that a certain body part or physical appearance is defective or wrong. A key to understanding what having a distorted body image can feel like is realizing that it's a fundamental disconnect between reality and perception for those suffering from body dysmorphia. So again, um, you know, we're getting down to what is your standard? What's the standard that you're basing this on, right? Um, and if somebody feels um, that there's a certain body part doesn't belong or their certain physical uh, appearance doesn't belong, um, you've got to get, get down to what is your standard, you know? Um, so they ask the question, if God is good and sovereignly in control of how I'm designed and created, why was I born with this? Well, this is, is not necessarily, um, it's not necessarily that something wrong. You're thinking of, of something wrong, right? But that's not necessarily that it is wrong, right? Um, but, you know, um, in, in that passage where Moses, or God is talking to Moses about, you know, going to the, the children of Israel, one of the things he says uh, when Moses says, well, I'm not a good speaker, is he says, who makes the deaf and who makes the dumb people that can't speak? It's a rhetorical question. You say, I do. Uh, or John 9, when, uh, when the, the, the boy that was born blind. Uh, who sinned, this, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither. Uh, but, but, but he was born blind that, that the glory of God would be revealed, right? On this day, at this hour, I'm going to bring this guy sight. And his whole life, his whole blindness was for this day. God had a purpose in that, um, you know, so this, this person here is struggling with this dysmorphia. Well, first of all, you can, you can bring up to the, the fact that we are in a fallen world, right? So there are broken things in this world. Um, uh, because of Adam's sin, we're all cursed physically with that, that rotten DNA that we get from, um, from Adam. And it does uh, carry with it bad things. You know, I, Quay and I were talking about this the other day, you know, um, I used to be the kind of person that would say no one's born uh, a homosexual, you know, because that would be what they were saying, especially back in the 80s and 90s, you know, it's like, oh, I was born this way, and I'd say, no, no one's born that way. And then I was, as I, as I studied more, I was like, you know, we are fallen. So it is possible to be uh, born with a proclivity towards sin. That doesn't make it right or normal, right? Because the standard is how God created us to be originally. <clears throat> so that's the standard that we that we have to judge all of these things on. How did God create us to be? 
you know, he, he created you in his image to glorify him. Yeah. I, I would say pretty much the same thing is um, we're, we're all born with a proclivity. So we, we need to have a standard by which we, we can measure something. And the fact that you're, you have this feeling, we have lots of feelings, and what we, have to, we have to go to Scripture to find out what we need to suppress it, that's sinful and what we need to put to em, death, em, put to death yes. yeah, and, and embrace. Right. Um, so, uh, I, you know, usually I try to say, oh, yeah, I have, I have things inside of me too that yes, yeah. are sinful. Right. That, that, you know, I was, I was born with a proclivity in this direction. Right. Uh, not the same direction as you, uh, you know, a different thing, right. but it's, it's the same. It's the same struggle. You know, that's a lot of times I try, because that's what a lot of people, they want to say, I'm unique. Right. I'm, I'm not like anybody else. You've never met someone like me. I'm like, right. come on. You're just like me. Right. I know you really well, because we're, we're so much alike. Imago Day, right? You know, people don't want to be unique. That's like the worst thing that we've promoted in our society. You're unique. Why do you think we have so much mental health? Because people are like, Nobody, nobody understands me. Nobody's ever had the problems that I have. Right. Wouldn't it be better just to say, no, no, we all do. Yeah. Like, we all have that. So a lot of times, you know, I, I'll do that with any, I think, we all have these proclivities. You have to figure out, well, you know, what has God called me to? What am I, what am I supposed to fight against and then what am I supposed to embrace? Right. Um, number seven, uh, how do you respond to someone who says, I can't believe a God who would claim to be love but sends people to hell? Now, this is one, uh, Quay and I thought about doing a mock dialogue, but I see it's almost 9 o'clock here. So. And we kind of talked about that. Yeah, we did kind of. The, the one thing I would, I would point out about this is I was thinking about this on the way here. I was really quiet. My wife said, okay. I said yeah, I'm thinking about this question. <laughs> um, I was really thinking about this, uh, this question, and um, I, was, I was thinking about the things I shared last week, and I'm telling you, it is such a strong point that we have the Trinity is so unique, it's so different than every other world religion. As I, as I thought about this question, I thought, you know, okay, so, you know, if, I, if someone asked me this, I, I'd, you know, I'd ask them, was, well, do you, do you not believe in justice? I mean, do you have no sense of justice? Because that's what, that's what hell is about. And of course, everybody has a sense of justice, right? Um, well, justice, where does justice come from? Well, it comes from love, right? Um, it, when, when we want to see justice done, we want to see the good honored and the bad punished. And, and one of the problems with our society is our legal system, our, our justice system is so messed up, you know, because we, we, don't, we don't punish things the way they should be. Like, you know, decades or centuries ago, you know, if somebody stole something, they'd have to pay it back. Biblical law, they pay that thing back plus four times, whatever, right? And, and then they would be free. You paid your debt, right? Now we put them in a cell for years. Like, what? What's the point? There's no restitution. You know, there, there's no. That's not justice. But when 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 we talk about this, the other side of love is justice, right? Um, and and you only have to think of a, a mama bear robbed of her cubs, right? Uh, to to see that kind of justice that comes in. in you know, that love once nothing to destroy the object of its affection, right? And will do anything to protect it. Um, and anything that comes in its way will be destroyed <laughs> to, um, to protect the, the, the focus of its love. But the other thing I thought about with the, with the Trinity is, again, is we so often think 
loving when we see this, claim to be loving. But he claims to be love, and it's very different. I am love, you know, he, because the Trinity has existed for all eternity, loving one another. That's the love. The love, first and foremost, is for the persons of the Trinity. That community, uh, God loves himself because he's the most glorious object there is, right? God is eternally glorious. And so because he, he is the basis for all morality and all justice, that is love. And when we sin, we're sinning against eternal love. And what, what, is the, what is the punishment against something that is valued eternally? If I, if I, if I rob a, a fiat you know, and, and smash it into a wall, I gotta pay, pay back you know, the value of that fiat. If I, if I rob a Mercedes-Benz, you know, crash into the wall. The value's different, right? If I sin against eternal love, what's, what's the payment? What's the, the justice against sinning against eternal love? And that's one thing. The second thing is, um, we're, we're eternal beings, so there's no, there's no, we're not gonna cease to be. So in hell, in hell, the sinner won't stop hating God. He won't stop sinning against God in his heart, right? So that, that will continue to go on, okay? Thoughts? That's just a horrible thought. <laughs> uh, it is, it is. Uh, well, yeah, same, same thing. I think, um, like, if you think of God as, uh, like, he, to be just, he, he has to punish. Like, like, then he's not just. And then he's not, if he's not just, he's not God. Um, and so I think, like, we, we tend to want to measure things by ourselves because we're like, well, I screwed up too, so I'm going to give this guy a break because he screwed up. God isn't us, right? right? And he's made it clear. And, and the thing is, just like we read in Romans 1, everyone is without excuse. So you can't say, well, you never told me that, or I didn't know, or how was I supposed to realize this? Um, and he's, the thing is, in the perfect trinity that is love, before the foundation of the universe, Christ said he would go and rescue his people by dying on the cross. It, it isn't free. Right. It wasn't free. Hell, hell was paid, paid for. Eternity was paid for through Christ. And all you got to do is believe. Just put your faith there, right? So. This is one I'm, gonna, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on. Um, uh, but uh, the value of uh, learning about evolution, there's a lot of value in it. There's a lot of value of studying all of these things. You know, uh, studying... Uh, the, the other position that you're coming up against, there's a lot of value in that uh, because it just makes you knowledgeable to their uh, discrepancies. Evolution and psycho, psycho, uh, psychoanalysis, yeah. you should know that too. Uh, how do you address the unbeliever who views religion, prayer, spiritual things as a crutch for people to get through life? They believe it's good for people and even society, but not necessarily for them. Again, uh, this is, you know, you pray, uh, you try to... to, to uh, draw them out to, to get to know them, the things that, the, that are going on in their life. They are part of, they are people, and they are part of society. So if they believe it's good for people in society, uh, it's good for them as well. Uh, you know. And what, do you, what happens when you die? What do you yeah. think happens when you die? Right. That, that's, that's always the, the, the big one, because yeah. they can say all this all that they want. You say, oh, well, then what do you think happens when you die? Right. Yep. Well, that, that's a big answer, you know, because then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well... Maybe this does matter. They, they feel guilt. They do feel guilt. But the other thing I say is, 
again, looking to use their own argument, I said, how do you know that not believing isn't a crutch? So you don't have to take responsibility. Right. Yep. I would say that's, that's your, you, you're calling it saying I'm using a crutch. I'm saying you're using a crutch. Right. You don't want to you're face it. Down. You're suppressing it, yep. right? Yep. So. All right, real quick, one, one more time. Key point, God's, God's world is a context every life is lived. God himself effectively witnesses to himself. So joyfully align your heart with God's revelation. Cultivate thankful uh, observation. We must understand man's nature pre and post fall and understand his problem so we understand the gospel. Be very clear on what God's word says about man's nature and study the redemption found in Christ. The most potent form of evidence is one that's already believed. So study your God so you might be able to point out the Imago Dei in the unbeliever. Suppressing truth will always lead to arbitrariness and inconsistency. So reason with the unbeliever to shut their mouths, but trust God to open their hearts. That's good. Remember, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. One of my favorite verses in Proverbs is the heart of the righteous studies how to answer. Four weeks is not going to do it, right? <laughs> study, 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 study. These books are still in the bookstore, uh, always ready. Uh, Bonson, um, uh, what is your worldview? And we have a list of, uh, and I uh, have a list here to give you of our recommendations for uh, further books, videos, podcasts, things like that. Uh, so please check those out. And I, would hi- I wanted to highlight this book. I did it. It's a book study at Solanco with some teachers last year, but don't tell anybody there's Christian teachers out there. Uh, it's called The Air We Breathe. Really good. It's a, some parts are a little woke for me, but, uh, but it's really good because it talks about how uh, it's the Christian faith that brought about uh, equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, progress. Uh, so, so it's really good. It, it, it's, a, it's not exactly considered apologetic, I guess, but it's saying and pointing out historically how it's Christianity that, that brought about uh, the end to infanticide and about uh, women being treated as fellow human beings, things like that. So just wanted to mention that. Thank you very much. And can we sing the doxology one more time? Mm-hmm. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father. 